Chapter Thirty of the Trail of the Hawk. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. Trail of the Hawk by Sinclair Lewis. Chapter Thirty. At home early that evening, Carl's doctor landlord gave him the message that a Miss Gertrude Cowles had called him up, but had declined to leave a number. The landlord's look indicated that it was no fault of his if Carl had friends who were such fools that they didn't leave their numbers. Carl got even with him by going out to the corner drug store to telephone Gertie instead of giving him a chance to listen. Hello, said Gertie over the telephone. Oh, hello, Carl. I just called to tell you Adelaide is going to be here this evening, and I thought perhaps you might like to come up if you have anything better to do. Carl did have something better to do. He might have used the whole evening in being psychological about Ruth and Phil Donnelly and English basement houses with cream-colored drawing-rooms, but he went up to Gertie's. They were all there, Gertie and Adelaide, Ray and his mother, and Miss Green, an unidentified girl from Minneapolis, all playing Parcheesi, explaining that they thought it not quite proper to play cards on Sunday, but that Parcheesi was different. Ray winked at Carl as they said it. The general atmosphere was easy and livable. Carl found himself at home again. Adelaide told funny antecedents about her school of domestic science and the chief teacher, who wore her hair in a walnut on top of her head and interrupted a lecture on dietetics to chase a cockroach with a ruler. As the others began to disappear, Gertie said to Carl, Don't go till I read you a letter from Ben Rusk I got yesterday. Lots of news from home. Joe Jordan is engaged. They were left alone. Gertie glanced at him immediately. He stiffened. He knew that Gertie was honest, kindly, with enough sense of display to catch the tricks of a new environment. But to her, matrimony would be the inevitable sequence of a friendship, which Ruth or Olive could take easily, pleasantly, for its own sake. And Carl, the young man just starting in business, was unheroically afraid of matrimony. Yet his stiffness of attitude disappeared when Gertie had read the letter from Jeroleman and mused, chin on hand, dreamily melancholy. I can just see them out slaying. Sometimes I wish I was out there. Honest, Carl, for all the sea and hills here, don't you wish sometimes it were August and you were out home camping on a wooden bluff over a lake? Yes, she cried. I've been away so long that I don't ever feel homesick for any particular part of the country. But just the same, I would like to see the lakes, and I do miss the prairies sometimes. Oh, I was reading something the other day. A fellow was trying to define the different sorts of terrain. Here it is, cut out of the paper. He produced from among a bunch of pocket-worn envelopes and memorandums, a clipping hack from a newspaper with a nail file. It read, The combat and mystery of the sea, the uplift of the hills, and their promise of wonder beyond, the kindness of late afternoons nestling in small fields or in ample barns where red clover tops and long grasses shine against the gray foundation stones and small boys seek for hidden entrances to this castle of the farm the deep holiness of the forest whose leaves are the stained glass of a cathedral to grave saints of the open all these i love but nowhere do i find content save on the midwestern prairie where the light of sky and plain drug the senses, 
where the sound of meadow-larks at dawn fulfills my desire for companionship, and the easy creak of the buggy as we top rise after rise bespells me into an afternoon slumber which the nervous town shall never know. I cut the thing out because I was thinking that the prairies, stretching out the way they do, make me want to go on and on in an aeroplane or any old thing. Lord, Lord, I guess before long I'll have to be beating it again, like the guy in Kipling that always got sick of reading the same page too long. Oh, but, Carl, you don't mean to say you're going to give up your business when you're doing so well. And aviation shows what you can do if you stick to a thing, Carl, and not just wander around like you used to do. We do want to see you succeed. His reply was rather weak. Well, gee, I guess I'll succeed all right, but I don't see much use of succeeding if you have to be stuck down in a greasy city street all your life. That's very true, Carl, but do you appreciate the city? Have you ever been in the Metropolitan Museum of Art or gone to a single symphony concert at Carnegie Hall? Carl was convinced that Gertie was a highly superior person, that she was getting far more of the good of New York than he. He would take her to a concert, have her explain the significance of the music. It was never to occur sharply to him that, though Gertie referred frequently to concerts and pictures, she showed no vast amount of knowledge about them. She was a fixed fact in his mind, had been for twenty years. He could have a surface quarrel with her because he knew the fundamental things in her, and with these he was sure no one could quarrel. His thoughts of Ruth and Olive were delightful surprises. His impression of Gertie was stable as the Rockies. Carl wasn't sure whether Upper West Side young ladies could be persuaded to attend a theater party upon short acquaintance. But he tried, and arranged a party of Ruth and Olive and himself, Walter McMonies, in town on his way from Africa to San Diego, Charlie Forbes of the Chronicle, and for chaperone the cosmopolitan woman whom he had met at Ruth, and who proved to be a Mrs. Turrell, a dismayingly smart dressmaker. When he called for Ruth, he expected such a gay girl as had poured tea. He was awed to find her a grande dame. In black velvet, more dignified, apparently inches taller, and in a vice-regally bad temper. As they drove off, she declared, "'Sorry I am in such a villainous temper. I hadn't a single pair of decent white gloves, and I tore some old black Spanish lace on the gown I was going to wear, and my entire family, who God unquestionably sent to be a trial to test me, clustered about my door.' while I was dressing in bald inquiries about laundry and other horribly vulgar things. Carl did not see much of the play. He was watching Ruth's eyes, listening to her whispered comments. She declared that she was awed by the presence of two aviators and a newspaper man. Actually, she was working, working at bringing out McMonies, a shy, broad-shouldered, inarticulate youth who supposed that he never had to talk. Carl had planned to go to the Ritz for after-theater supper, but Ruth and Olive persuaded him to take them to the café of the rectors of that time, where they said they had never been in a Broadway café and they wanted to see the famous actors with their makeups off. At the table, Carl carried Ruth off in talk, like a young lockover out of the Middle West. Around them was the storm of highballs and brandy and club soda, theatrical talk, and a confused mass of cigar smoke, shirt fronts, white shoulders, and drab waiters. 
Yet here was a quiet refuge for the eternal force of life. Carl was asking, Would you rather be a perfect lady and have blue bowls with bunnies on them for your very worst disposition, or be like your mountain-climbing woman and have anarchists for friends one day and be off hiking through the clouds the next? Oh, I don't know. I know I'm terribly susceptible to the nice things of life, but I do get tired of being nice, especially when I have a bad temper, as I had tonight. I am not at all imprisoned in a harem, and as for social aspirations, I'm a nobody. But still I have been brought up to look at things that aren't like the home life of our dear queen, as impossible, and I'm quite sure that father believes that poor people are poor because they are silly and don't try to be rich. But I've been reading, and I've made to you, it may seem silly, to call it a discovery. But to me it's the greatest discovery I've ever made, that people are just people, all of them, that the little mousy clerk may be a hero, and the hero may be a nobody, that the motorman that lets his beastly car spatter mud on my nice new velvet skirt may be exactly the same sort of person as the swain who commiserates with me in his cunning Harvard accent. Do you think that? I know it. Most of my life I've been working with men with dirty fingernails, and the only difference between them and the men with clean nails is a nail cleaner, and that costs just ten cents at the corner drug store. Seriously. I remember a cook I used to talk to on my way down to Panama once. Panama! How I'd like to go there! And he had as much culture as anybody I've ever met. Yes, but generally do you find very much oh, courtesy and that sort of thing among mechanics as much as among what calls itself the better class? No, I don't. You don't? Why, I thought the way you spoke. Why, blessed, what in the world would be the use of their trying to climb if they already had all the rich have? You can't be as gracious as the man that's got nothing else to do when you're about to jump ahead of the steamroller every second. That's why they ought to take things. If I were a union man, I wouldn't trust all these writers and college men and so on that try to be sympathetic not for one minute. They mean well, but they can't get what it means to be a real workman to have to be up at five every winter morning with no heat in the furnished housekeeping room, or to have to see his woman sick because he can't afford a doctor. So they talked, boy and girl, wondering together what the world really is like. I want to find out what we can do with life, she said. Surely it's something more than working to get tired and then resting to go back to work. But I'm confused about things. She sighed. My settlement work, I went into it because I was bored. But it did make me realize how many people are hungry, and yet we just talk and talk and talk. Olive and I sit up half the night when she comes to my house, and when we're not talking about the new negligees we're making and the gorgeous tea gowns we're going to have when we're married, we rescue the poor and think we're dreadfully advanced. But does it do any good to just talk? Dear me, I split that poor infinity right down his middle. I don't know, but I do know I don't want to be just stupidly satisfied, and talking does keep me from that. Anyway, see here, Miss Winslow, suppose some time I suggested that we become nice and earnest and take up socialism and single tax and this, what is it, oh, syndicationalism, and really studied them. Would you do it? Make each other study? Love to. Does Dunleavy think much? She raised her eyebrows a bit, but hesitated. Oh, yes, no, I don't suppose he does. Or 
Anyway, mostly about the violin. He played a lot when he was in Yale. Thus was Carl encouraged to be fatuous, and he said in a manner which quite dismissed Phil Dunlavey, I don't believe he's very deep, rather light, I'd say. Her eyebrows had ascended further. Do you think so? I'm sorry. Why sorry? Oh, he's always been rather a friend of mine. Olive and Phil and I roller skated together at the age of eight. But, and I shall probably marry Phil some day before long. She turned abruptly to Charlie Forbes with a question. Lost. Already lost. Was the playmate a loss that disgusted him with life? He beat his spirit, cursed himself as a clumsy mechanic. He listened to Olive only by self-compulsion. It was minutes before he had the ability and the chance to say to Ruth, Forgive me. In the name of the Blue Bowl, Mr. Dunlavey was rather rude to me, and I've been just as rude, and to you, and without his excuse, and he would naturally want to prevent you from a wild aviator from Lord knows where. You are forgiven and Phil was rude, and you're not a Lord knows where, I'm sure. Almost brusquely, Carl demanded, come for a long tramp with me on the Palisades next Sunday, if you can, and if it's a decent day. You said you'd like to run away, and we can be back before dinner if you like. Well, let me think it over. Oh, I would like to. I've always wanted to do just that. Think of it. The Palisades, just opposite and I never see them except for a walk of half a mile or so when I stay with a friend of mine, Laura Needham, at Winklehurst, up in the Palisades. My mother never approved of a wilder wilderness in Central Park in the habit. I've never been able to get Olive to explore, but it isn't conventional to go on long tramps with even the nicest new Johnny, is it? No, but I know. You'll say who makes the convention, and of course there's no answer but they— but they are so all-present, they. Oh, yes, 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 I will go. But you will let me be back by dinner-time, won't you? Will you call for me about two? And can you... I wonder if a hawk out of the windy skies can understand how daring a dove out of 92nd Street feels it going walking in the Palisades. End of chapter 30